I'm Jonathan Mitchell. Today on The Truth, we'll visit Fitzroy, an inner city suburb of Melbourne, Australia, with the first two episodes of The Fitzroy Diaries. It's a fantastic piece of audio fiction produced by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I first learned about it when I was judging the Australian Podcast Awards, where it won Best Fiction Podcast. And I thought it was so real and immediate and intricate without feeling overdone that I wanted to share it with all of you. After this, The Truth is taking a short break. We'll be back with all new episodes on September 12th. But in the meantime, we proudly present the first two episodes of The Fitzroy Diaries. And now, episode one of The Fitzroy Diaries. Thursday is dying all around me as the shadows lengthen and the last of the birds fold themselves into the breeze. Their chatter is interrupted by the occasional sound of a cyclist slicing through the air in the bike lane beside me. And half a block away, a tram hushes by, a friendly serpent of warm light snaking away from the city to the suburbs. Everywhere, there are gigs and art openings and book launches and comedy shows and always there is always a festival. But me, I just walk, with a baby strapped to the front of me and Max finally home, coaxing a four-year-old out of the bath, and I think. I think of some things I love. I love crisp sun and banana smoothies and how gumboots make you walk like a kid again, and I love the way you can tell from a distance that a person is eating a corn chip because of how that person is sideways posting the oversized ones into their mouth. And I love the funny woman tram driver who's sometimes on the 96 tram and the miraculous, ludicrous science of rainbows and condensation from warm inside talking and flannelette sheets and winter and apple pie and a friend arriving and daytime pyjamas and you, you, my friends, with me even when you're not, even when the people who are with me are these people, strolling towards me now with eyes that are sparkly and funny and hair product that smells like fake apricot. They're joking about something that isn't really a joke. She says, Are we really sure, though? I'm not sure we're sure. Oh, hang on now. We're not sure? I'm just not sure we're sure. Are we sure? I'm not even sure who I am anymore. Hello, I say, because they're looking at me in a way that makes me think it might be helpful. Hello, she says. Lovely night, hey. And as she says it, she grabs his hand like it was where her arm was going anyway, and suddenly it's like she's speaking for both of them, like it's their lovely night and I'm welcome to it. She's taken him completely by surprise, I notice, and he looks dumbly down at their hands together, swinging jauntily. He looks at her, looks at me, shy little smile. Beautiful, I say, and they have changed gears now into whatever comes next, which happens behind me, and I turn to the house and leave Thursday outside for the cats and the bats, and these two, who like each other, and the moon. The very next night, walking the streets, barefoot and half pyjamaed, with a baby twisting and swivelling in my arms like a skink, I'm overhearing waves of conversations between the kids from the Housing Commission on their bikes and watching mates come home from the Fitzroy pool with their bags full of towels and 
free street press newspapers and a zucchini and some pasta sauce and a yoga mat. And it's funny how there's a stereotype of the north side inner city green belt hipster and ha 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 and all that. But also, shut up please, because on nights like this, God, I love these anonymous dorks reading and arguing, outwardly pessimistic, quietly hopeful. Two cyclists are broadcasting across the bike length that separates them. No eye contact, but voices rising to broach the distance. Sailing leisurely, back straight, tired legs, end of a big day. Where does the board stand on all this, by the way? The board? Yeah. The board couldn't run a bath. What about Ian? Ian's interesting. Never quite know about Ian. What's his background, Ian? And Ian's background remains, I'm afraid, a mystery for me and for you this evening as the cyclists recede into the dark and up ahead on the other side of the road, a shape comes into view, a body crouched half in and out of a car door. Is it alive? Is it human? Are they okay? But it's just a man leaning into the car, scrabbling around on the floor while talking into a phone. Yeah, it's not here, sorry. Where did you last see it? It's not in the Honda? It may be in the Honda. It may not. We'll never know. Two mates walking to a party are heading towards me now, dressed up, holding a bottle in a paper bag. Well, let's put it this way. I think he wore natural deodorant. Yeah, exactly. You see? Oh, yeah. God. And that having concluded matters, off they go, bearing the bottle of wine northwards to, I suppose, a North Fitzroy house party. If they are not exactly brimming with new possibilities, at the very least they remain unsullied by non-synthetic deodorant. And now, as I round the corner of our street, here's Alan, who always stands shirtless, watering his garden. He's standing, shirtless, watering his garden. Warm! He shouts, like Caliban, like pure id, like a toddler in a library. He's right, though. It is warm. I agree, and I'm turning away when he reaches up and paints the air just above his head with the water from his hose. Red sky at night, he says. Watch out tomorrow. And even though that's not exactly how the saying goes, I like Ellen's version. The next night, high drama. Fire trucks in the street. Me with Max and the baby. The neighbours all out and there wouldn't usually be seen dead ends. Alan, always out the front, shirtless, watering his garden, is out the front, shirtless, watering the garden. Young couple, he says to me, nodding hello as Max shows the baby the big bright lights. Left the stove on. Just bought the house last January. Paid over a million. So dear. Not sure if the stove was gas or electric. They weren't home when the truck came. They're home now. He nods towards two people huddled away from the crowd, ashamed, probably, of their forgetfulness, their possibly gas stove and their silly expensive house. The fire officers all wear braces. This has the effect of making them seem overdressed in comparison to us in our track pants, half nude, barefoot and mussed up by the evening. I admire them from behind my baby, which I use as a shield for most of what I'm not getting away with. For my hair, though, there is little excuse. Another baby, eh? 
shouts Alan. And I say, yes, two now. And he says, goodbye then. And so I head off, feeling like the woman from down the road who keeps having babies. St Patrick's Day. A Pogues cover band wails the anguished punk politics of Shane and the lads to a bewildered crowd of maggoted commerce students squinting at the sunset from underneath novelty Irish elf hats. A woman from St John's Ambulance takes huge, clumsy photos with her iPad, the bright blue rectangle bobbing about, robbing the event of any last wisp of casual intimacy. Our section of the street has been cut off using largely symbolic giant plastic jigsaw pieces thanks to Gail, who lives in the apartment block but who... Used to live in such a lovely street in Brighton. And who told me she had insisted the council put them in because of the... Inebriated young people pissing and fornicating out the front of our houses. This is the same woman who said to me once... No, I don't take public transport. So far as I can tell, it's a service for homeless people to spread themselves out in, swearing and shouting. It's the smell I really object to. Her face, as she said it, displayed an eye-rolling camaraderie that rendered me instantly complicit. There is, by the way, the same amount of pissing and fornicating going on in the street as usual tonight, i.e. none, as I turn my key in the door, leaving the Irish music and the evening behind. Monday evening, I pass Luminous Ute Guy's house. Luminous Ute Guy is a spitting, snarling sociopath with too much time on his hands and a chip on his shoulder the size of a forest. Repaints his ute bright bubblegum orange every couple of months like he's designing a float for a street parade. But he isn't, or it isn't a parade I'd like to attend. Sure enough, he's leering out at me from behind his gate. Hello, I say. (coughs) He says... Gail tells me she misses Brighton, but she supposes this area... ..has its colourful characters. Luminous Ute Guy is not colourful. Luminous Ute Guy is a jerk. And today I see the couple again, with the hand-holding. They're coming out of number 100... She has wet hair. He has a breadstick. Which is the point, though. Surely you can see that. They want division, she says. People voted them in. Can't argue with that. It's democracy. (sighs) Democracy. Really? You're eye-rolling democracy. Say what you like about the government. In a democracy, at least the people make the decisions. Oh, she says. What? He says. Oh, she says. You're adorable. And she goes to kiss him, and he's edging back as I pass them, his protestations now behind me. Teensy bit patronising. I hear him say, and I feel kind of proud that they're going somewhere with a breadstick and clean hair and little giggling arguments. Their voices dip beneath the birds who have gathered in the eucalypts, dipping the branches low into the evening. And there's Alan, out the front of his house, shirtless, watering the garden. Street light out. He tells me, the water from his hose snaking upwards towards a lamppost. Lady up the road was just here, asking about it. Out since yesterday. I look at him for a moment. He clarifies. The light, not the lady. You mean Gail? I ask, as though I don't know the answer. Don't know her name. And I know what he's going to say next. Nice lady. Used to live in Brighton. 
and a luminous orange ute looms into my peripheral vision. Bad man, says Alan, and it takes me a while to realise he's looking at the ute. Why do you say that? I ask him. Bad man, that man, says Alan again, darkly. And the hose goes limp in his hand and he turns and heads inside with a swiftness I haven't seen in him before. Flywire door flapping behind him. The orange ute, meanwhile, has reversed into a car park behind me and I'm deciding to turn the other way when ute guy comes into view. Hello. He says, meeting my eyes for long enough that I understand he has heard us talking about him. Hi, I say, trying to sound relaxed. Nice evening. He says... And in an astonishing trick or a glorious reveal, I can't decide, his face relaxes into a huge, generous smile. He is transformed. Lively, attractive, kindly, humour darting behind his eyes. And I stammer that, yes, not bad at all. And he turns to leave and I am stunned. I reason, turning towards the house, that luminous ute guy is a true psychopath. Manipulative, brilliant, deft in the art of social engineering. Unless, of course, he is misunderstood. A victim of moods or emotional turmoil or chemical imbalance. Perhaps, he has me thinking, perhaps I have mixed up my stories and did not, in fact, witness luminous ute guy firing spit menacingly in my general direction. But I hear a slight sound behind me and I turn to see the shape of Alan behind his front door. A grown man, hiding, muttering to himself. It's bin night tonight and the street is empty but for the wonky rows of winking bins like slovenly teenagers reporting to the principal's office and I think again of you, my friends. And tomorrow I might see Luminous Ute Guy. And I might see my couple with the breadstick and I will almost certainly see Alan. And maybe things will change and maybe nothing will. But you, whom I never see, will be here with me, even when you're not. That was episode one of the Fitzroy Diaries. We'll hear episode two in just a moment. But first... I mentioned at the top of the show that we're taking a break on the truth. We'll be back September 12th with a brand new season of stories. In the meantime, I am off on vacation with my family. We're going to travel someplace very, very nice. And I am not going to forget my Harry's razor. Harry's makes amazing razors. Their founders were just two regular guys, tired of getting ripped off and paying for overpriced gimmicks, like vibrating heads, heated blades, handles that look like a prop from a sci-fi movie. What Harry's makes is quality, durable blades at a fair price. It's just $2 per blade. And if you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. This summer, refresh your wallet and your face with Harry's trial set. It comes with a weighted ergonomic handle for an easy grip, a five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade for a close shave, rich lathering shave gel that will keep you smelling great, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy on the go. Listeners of The Truth can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash the truth. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash the truth to redeem your offer and let them know we sent you because it helps support the show. Now, episode two of the Fitzroy Diaries. It's Monday and I'm walking. 
and I'm a bit crook and a bit fuzzy, but pleasantly post-coffee, and I'm thinking of the things I love. I love Fridays and holidays and the fact that on my last one I took notes in my phone like tiny crescent moon, silver jellyfish, to remind myself of some train of thought I won't ever remember. And I love the lazy, hot, relaxed way everybody eats icy poles on holidays too. Like, I reckon if the Queen ate an icy pole, she'd look like she was leaning against a Holden, squinting at the surf and telling Dave it looked like a southerly. And I love clean surfaces and the fact that a shower and the metaphor it represents are so adjacent that it feels like starting over every time. And I love quiet nighttime radio and the fact that those presenters will always, to me, feel like the most genuine adults, in that they are quiet and unhurried and know the news when everyone else is stupidly asleep. And I love the fact that this week was a bit hard, but in small installations and at strange times of the day and night, I finished reading a book. And I love the internet for the post-book debrief slash double-check slash look up the author slash see if there are film rights. And I love the thunderous sound of bins being brought in that signifies someone else is coming home. And I love other people's cooking and curiosity and the word crescendo and Medicare and you, my friends whom I never see, but who are with me always. And Monday, at last, is sinking into the sunset as I head home to my exhausted partner and my hopefully sleeping four-year-old, wondering how it is that I still haven't quite shaken the virus that pinches my sinuses and clouds my head and that of the baby sleeping, finally, heavily, noisily on my chest. The thing I love the most, though, and to which I look forward with a relish that is almost unbecoming, is bed. Next morning, straight out of the shower, my mind cleared of some of its viral stupefaction by a deep, jolting, interrupted sleep. I head out to pick up some milk. I'm about to cross the main road when... Watch out! A cyclist shouts. I think it's to me, but then comes the telltale roof slap and I realise it's another case of a car sailing into the bike lane. It's a bike lane, genius! Shouts some lycra. It's a scene that plays out across this city hundreds of times a day. Learn to drive! Comes the parting advice. A muted response from inside the car, but the cyclist has had enough and she wobbles back into her stride across the intersection where a green light in the shape of a bicycle beckons her to cross. Such a friendly image. I can see her still shaking her head as her fluoro buttocks bob off towards the park. Outside the laundromat, a man paces, talking on his phone. Which is why if you have a problem with the proofs, you bring it up in the proof meeting, David. As he catches my eye, he does a brief eye roll, as though he and I both know that David is on very thin ice with this one. This is another thing I love, of course. I love going on these walks. I'm almost home when I bump into our neighbour, Alan, who always stands out the front of his house, shirtless, watering the garden. This time, he's on the footpath in a dressing gown, collecting a bunch of rubbish sprayed out across the ground. He's furious. 
Rang the council. He says. Rang them last night. Told them this don't belong to me. Don't belong to the neighbours. Council truck came along this morning. Sure enough, picked up the mattress and a toaster and a chair that turned up overnight. But oh no, not this junk. Gotta do it all yourself, you do. I feel somehow slightly responsible for Alan's uncharacteristic annoyance and Alan, who isn't having any of my sympathetic acquiescence, shuffles back inside, talking to himself as he goes. Tuesday night, end of a dreary, solitary day. I head out again. There's a bin out the front of Alan's house now, all the rubbish carefully packed into it, and I can't help but see the street as he must see it, this man who has lived there for presumably years, whose view of the ancient miner's cottage across the road from him wasn't always cast into shadow by the apartment complex noisily expanding beside it, framed by a huge mechanical dinosaur, a crane bearing the name of a developer with a CFMEU flag hanging from its nose like a handkerchief. On the way home, I count two mattresses, a broken chair, a shopping trolley full of coat hangers and the arm of a mannequin sticking out of a busted chest of drawers. People don't consider it litter, though, so long as it's neatly arranged. Beer bottles are lined up in rows along the bottoms of buildings. A chip packet is folded and inserted vertically between two planks of a fence. And the shopping trolley full of coat hangers says, free to a good home. People, I conclude, are the worst. And being sick isn't much fun either. And Tuesdays are not nearly close enough to Fridays. And now I am going to bed. By Thursday, I'm feeling better. I'm marching through Fitzroy to Carlton with a pram and what is now just a lingering head cold, and I'm thinking... I'm thinking that this is an area whose history was shaped by gangsters, by migrants, by Aboriginal activists, by the working poor, the fringe dwellers, the drug addicts, the homeless, the ignored. Now, the buildings I pass contain shops called things like Cruft and Skeen. They're all greys and blacks, shirts that might be dresses, dresses that might be shirts, autumnal fingernails and bright childish socks. Thursday is punishing the hungover shop assistants who lean against the fitting room doors, sullen and resigned and statuesque, like cowboys in westerns waiting for the bad guys to hit town. You all right for sizes? They ask, and nobody knows. Across the road, the Housing Commission flats, noisy with children sprinting in zigzags and people calling each other across the grounds. High above, a blue neon sign. Our home, it says. In the playground there, I meet a girl called Zara. I'm Zara, she says to me. I'm kind of in charge here. A statement none of the dozen or so children around her even looks like contradicting. She points at a woman changing a nappy and talking hands-free on a phone pinned between her ear and her hijab, and she says, That woman over there, that's this dude's mum and my auntie. And don't worry about that guy over there, because that's Wayne. She's gesturing towards an enormous white dude in a Nike t-shirt and tracksuit pants, inching his way along behind a walker, swearing noisily and gesturing at the sky. As I cut across to Brunswick Street, an aggressive man in a huge SUV cuts in front of another cyclist and I am thinking about things I don't like. 
I don't like arrogant people in fast cars going 60 in a 40 zone. I don't like the new supermarkets everywhere. I don't like how easy it is for weak people in powerful positions to destroy strong ideas or how contemporary capitalism is so explicitly and deliberately unfair and human patterns of behaviour are so deadeningly predictable and assholes are just going to be rewarded for being assholes for the rest of time and also the blithe little performances of innocence and surprise that entitled jerks do when they're busted being the absolute worst. It was a long time ago and I'm afraid I simply don't recall, Your Honour. My apologies, Your Honour, but I just don't recall. I don't recall, Your Honour. And I really don't like the fact that chucking a cigarette butt casually mid-sentence and grinding it into the ground and then moving on to do other things like live and breathe in the universe is in any way still socially acceptable. And I don't like aniseed or bus exhaust or people who aren't nice to waiters or disappointing peaches or shipping fees or being late to things. I despair at the state of the goddamn house and the state of the goddamn country and pop-up ads and ducking autocorrect and I hate bin juice and the word strategic in a business context and the gap between the person I am when I am buying a new product to make my house tidier or my life work better and the person I am during every other nanosecond I have lived on the planet and also the stupid end of the doona and ISIS and blowflies and sunburn. I like Zara. I really do. I like the little salute she gave me when I said goodbye. It's been with me all this time, walking home. The semi-solemn salute of a girl who's maybe 13, delivered as she folded herself backwards into the crowd of children, swivelling to shout orders in another language, kids fanning out across the playground behind her, squealing with delight. It's not until Saturday that I see Alan again standing out the front of his house, shirtless, watering the garden. Alan, I say. Hello. He says. See, they're putting up this for sale. His hose is pointed to the house next door, dormant now for a while, squat and untouched by renovators, vacated by a tiny nonna with an apron and both a herb garden and a rose garden. For sale. I say. Yep. He says. Sign going up on Monday, they tell me. I used to play in there, you know. My mum and her mum were friends. You're kidding. You and the woman who lived here used to play together. Long time ago. She's gone, you know. I figured, I say. Although as I say it, I realise I'm not quite sure if he means moved out or dead. How long have you lived here, Alan? I ask. He grins at me, steps sideways gingerly so I can better see the window behind him. See that room? He says with a smile. I nod. Born in there. My brother too. Sister born in the kitchen. You're kidding. 83 years I've been here, he says, looking at me sideways, examining me for a response, trying to keep from grinning. He's got me too. I had no idea. I had him in the old man category, but I hadn't thought 80s. 70 at a pinch. You're 83, I say, partly out of disbelief and partly because I know it's my line. He tells me then about the street, about what it used to be like, says his grandfather was a local businessman. 
had a street named after him somewhere in Coburg. Says they used to get the train from Park Street back when there was a train line all the way to Winchelsea to play on the beach. Different back then, he says to me. I bet, I say. What did you do for a crust, Alan? I ask. Odd jobs, he says, smiles sadly. Mum took me to hospital when I was a kid. It's funny. I still remember it exactly. The old halls and everything. They had me doing all these puzzles. It was different back then. There are things they do for kids different nowadays. This heartbreaking little speech tumbles out of him like everything does. Like when he tells me not to forget that it's bin night. He turns off his hose and straightens up, peering up at the house next door, his weight in his heels like a little boy. She's still got our sideboard, she has. Is what I think he says. Pardon? I say. Our old sideboard. Still in there. Mum lent it to them, you see. Never saw it again after that. I leave Alan eventually, snaking his hose into a neat pile, and as I pass the nonna's house, I see people in suits in the hallway. There's a glinting set of car keys on an old sideboard in the hall near the door. Out the front, the old woman's herbs are scrubby and overgrown, the basil gone to flower. The CFMEU flag ting-tings against the crane on the building site behind me as I head for home, and I realise Alan's house will probably be sold when he goes too. Alan, who, despite having lived in the one house his entire life, now finds himself in a strange and changing place. I look back and wave before turning in, and already, my friends, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, I am thinking very fondly of bed. The Fitzroy Diaries was created and written by Lauren Clark. It was edited by Sophie Townsend, with sound designed by Mark Don. There are eight episodes in all of The Fitzroy Diaries. Please go check them out. You can find them on any podcast app, or you can go to abc.net.au and search for The Fitzroy Diaries. Season two of The Fitzroy Diaries will be out in November. Special thanks to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales for their help in obtaining the rights to broadcast this work. And thank you also to Sophie Townsend. The Truth is a part of Radiotopia from PRX. We're a curated network of extraordinary cutting-edge podcasts. You can hear all of the Radiotopia shows at radiotopia.fm. And if you'd like to sponsor a future episode of The Truth, send an email to sponsor at radiotopia.fm. Our associate producer is Emily Marinoff. Our intern is Kara Ehlenfeldt. I'm Jonathan Mitchell. And you have been hearing... The truth. Radio Topia. From P.